You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson, the editor of Renew Economy, and joining me, as usual, is ITK analyst David Leach. David, um, trust you are well. Giles, I'm well. Trust the audience as well. And I trust they're enjoying listening to a podcast that talks about the issues, not just the bloody politics. (laughs) <laughs> Bloody politics. Well, we've had a couple of weeks of election campaign already. And one of the things which has been dodged, I guess, until this week, um, has been sort of climate policies. But it's gone a bit frustrating because we've just sort of seemed to be fallen back into a scare campaign about carbon taxes and uh, bollocks like that. And we thought it was about time to get back and to remind ourselves and everyone why it is that we need to take action on climate. And David, your suggestion that we get Professor Andy Pittman onto the line and um, we talked to him earlier today. This is um, Professor Andy Pittman. Andy Pittman, thank you very much for um, joining the Energy Insiders podcast. My pleasure. Climate change is considered one of the most important um, parts of the election campaign by scientists, by economists, perhaps not by politicians, because we've seen it largely avoided. Can you just recap just very briefly the urgency of the climate, the urgency of the need for climate action right now? Yeah, sure. I I mean, the, the major driver of urgency is the recognition that the more the earth warms, the more that warming will be expressed in the sorts of extreme events that dislocate societies or damage infrastructure or ruin crops or whatever. So there is a really major urgency to limit warming to as small a number as we can achieve. And the Paris Agreement, which many of your listeners will be aware of, set a ceiling not a target, but a ceiling of two degrees that warming would not be allowed to exceed. And if we want to limit warming to two degrees, we have almost run out of time. So it actually genuinely matters that we get to net zero uh, emissions by as soon as we possibly can. 2050 is too late net zero by 2035 is the sort of thing that we're looking at as a country and as a planet. And if you want to get to net zero by 2035, you have almost no time. It's literally panic stations to try to reduce emissions every way we can to get to net zero by 2035. That's where the urgency comes from. That's why you hear some scientists, but also some politicians, advocating very strongly for much stronger action on climate change. I'm a bit alarmed to hear that you're sort of saying we're almost out of time for two degrees. I thought we might have been at best out of time for 1.5 degrees. Where are we sitting at one for, for the 1.5 degrees target? Because that was the aspirational target of, of Paris. And is it possible to explain the difference between a 1.5 degree outcome and a two degree outcome? 
the difference is half a degree. Um, the consequences of that half a degree is extremely difficult to discuss in this kind of a forum because it matters crucially where you are. There are places where it doesn't make a massive difference. And there are differences where it's the it's the difference between an existential risk and probably adaptable to. So it matters crucially where you are. In addition, things that some of your listeners will be aware of, tipping points, the risk of tipping points, and I'm talking here, collapse of the West Antarctic Ice Sheet, ocean acidification, collapse of large-scale forest systems. These things become more of a risk the more we warm. So there is massive benefit in warming uh, by as little as possible. Remembering we've already warmed the planet by a degree. So it's not like we're starting from nowhere. We've already warmed the planet by a degree. We've already seen the emergence of some remarkable weather and climate events for a degree of warming. So another half a degree is not a good news story. But another um, degree is going to stretch the adaptive capacity of many systems. So one and a half degrees is not good, but it's, first of all, better than two degrees and sadly probably no longer feasible. Um, what is feasible is to exceed one and a half degrees and then instigate uh, very active policies to bring warming back down to the one and a half degrees with, with what's called an overshoot. But actually limiting warming to one and a half degrees now is probably too late. That's why the climate scientists were saying we need to act in 1990. So, Andy, I might if, um, just want to explore a little bit about the sort of uh, basic physics and science um, in, in that context and uh, I hope our readers, listeners will uh, excuse me going back to such basic concepts, but uh, sometimes I feel that we discuss the consequences without understanding the causes uh, sufficiently well. Maybe that's just my age. As I understand it, the current range for a, a doubling of carbon in the atmosphere is that it would produce warming of about 2.6 to about 4.1 degrees Celsius. Is is that a number you would, have I said that right? Let's call it two to four. And I understand that carbon in the atmosphere has gone up about 45% uh, from pre-industrial times from about 280 parts per million to uh, about 410 parts per million. Is that also sort of right? Uh, I feel like the leader of the opposition being asked what the current interest rate is. Uh, oh. You're correct on 280 parts per million. The actual current level of CO2 in the atmosphere, I just need to check, haven't looked at it in a while. But the actual CO2 is only part of the question. One talk, talks about CO2E or the effective CO2 concentration, which looks at a package of other greenhouse gases like methane, nitrous oxide and the CFCs. And if you take all of those into account, we're getting pretty close to the levels of greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere that gives you that one and a half degree of warming. Yes, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to uh, ask you uh, 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 those sort of questions. 
Uh, and I'm an economist and I couldn't have instantly told you what the unemployment rate was. So I'm glad I wasn't Anthony Albanese uh, because then I'd probably have COVID as well. Now, uh, within that range of two to four degrees, I think the physics is fair, fairly clearly settled that the straight out carb, direct carbon impact would be about one degree for a doubling of the of the carbon level. And the rest of it comes from these kind of feedback loops of, of one sort or another. Yeah, that's, that's basically right. And that the main feedbacks are, are, are clouds, um, um, albedo effect, and, and, and rain. Um, is first, are they the three, sort of? Mm, so some of those are and some of those aren't feedbacks. Uh, the most important feedback process is water vapour whereby as you warm the atmosphere, the water holding capacity of the atmosphere increases and it increases with water vapour. Water vapour is a very effective greenhouse gas. So you get what's called an amplification or a positive feedback where the warmer atmosphere holds more water, which absorbs more infrared radiation, which absorbs um, more um, emitted infrared radiation, which leads to more warming, which leads to more water in the atmosphere, uh, which is a greenhouse gas and on it goes in what's called a reinforcing or positive feedback. Uh, clouds are much more complex because it depends on the kind of cloud. Uh, and your listeners uh, can test this empirically. Uh, on a beautifully clear night, they'll likely wake up to very cool temperatures in the morning because the cirrus cloud, the very thin, wispy cloud high in the atmosphere has not been there to intercept outgoing uh, thermal infrared radiation. If there's a bit of cloud about, it traps that outgoing thermal infrared radiation and emits it back down towards the surface. So cirrus cloud is a positive feedback on climate. Low-level stratus cloud, the stuff that you imagine covers London most of the time, is a negative feedback on global warming because it reflects so much of the sun, sunlight giving you that dark and dreary English weather or what we're seeing in Sydney these days. Uh, so it does depend on the nature of the cloud as to whether you get a positive reinforcing feedback or a negative reducing feedback. The, the latest science suggests that overall clouds act as a relatively small positive feedback. Yes, uh, and and it's those um, uh, the extent of those amplifications and reinforcements that lead to the uh, range uh, of two to four degrees, and and why it's been so hard to uh, pin it down any more closely. That and other things. So you mentioned albedo. That's the reflectivity of the surface, or the reflectivity of a of a of a, any surface. But in the context of the land surface, the reflectivity depends on how much moisture is in the soil, the nature of the vegetation, whether it's urban or not urban, uh, whether there's snow covering the surface. And the role the snow plays depends upon the nature of the vegetation. So if you've got coniferous forests, they tend to be dark, even with a metre of snow, because the snow accumulates underneath the trees. Whereas if you've got grasslands, the snow masks the grassland and you get highly reflective surfaces, uh, which is, of course, why if you're a skier, you need to make sure you uh, 
and put suntan lotion on your underneath your chin and underneath the bridge of your nose because you get burned by the reflection of the sunlight coming up off the snow. So one of the uh, concerns about global warming is you tend on average to melt the snow and expose dark surfaces below to absorb more sunlight. If you absorb more sunlight, you warm. If you warm, um, you then tend to melt more snow. And that's one of those positive feedbacks I mentioned earlier. Same applies to sea ice. Um, importantly, that as you melt sea ice, you expose the relatively dark ocean uh, below the sea ice to absorb more sunlight and warm the ocean and tend to melt the sea ice. That's fantastic. Um, I recall when uh, you came in to present to some uh, UBS clients about 2010 in, in a presentation that has always stuck in my mind, that you said that uh, at that time that we knew more about warming than we did about the effect of warming on rainfall patterns, which I think are tied up a lot with ocean currents. And this is where I think the discussion, I, I certainly know even less than before, but I wanted to ask you, here in Australia, we uh, sort of a criticism of climate change, not one I subscribe to, of course, but is that sometimes we have droughts and sometimes we have rain and can climate change be responsible for both of them? And I just wondered if you could just talk generally uh, about, about that. Sure. And that gets very complex very quickly, as you might imagine. So rainfall, first of all, rain needs two processes or two things. It needs lots of water in the atmosphere and it needs to be lifted vertically upwards. And that process of lifting the air vertically upwards cools the air, leads to condensation, leads to droplets of moisture forming and gives you a good chance of the rain falling out of the atmosphere as precipitation or rainfall. So there's this process called the thermodynamic response to global warming, which is all about what's called the Clausius-Clapeyron equation, which is back to that fact that a warmer atmosphere can hold more moisture at about 7% per degree of warming. So first of all, as you warm the atmosphere, you get 7% more moisture in the atmosphere per degree of warming, and that means you've got 7% more moisture to potentially fall out as rainfall. So that gives you a sense that in principle, global warming should be associated with more rainfall. But that's only a bit of the story. The other bit of the story is global warming changes the gradients of temperature between the tropics and the high latitudes. It perturbs things like Rossby waves and the large-scale circulation patterns, the storm tracks that, um, that if you've ever sailed to the Antarctic or you've ever gone ocean sailing down into the Southern Ocean, you know it's extremely windy. The roaring 40s and all of that are the storm tracks in the Southern Hemisphere. So anything that perturbs the storm tracks can perturb the bringing of moisture from the oceans to the land in places like Southern Australia. So let's imagine South Australia or Victoria, this 7% more moisture in the atmosphere, that's lovely, unless 
those storm tracks shift slightly south and those systems that were bringing moisture and generating the uplift move a little bit south. And then, despite the fact that on average rainfall will intensify, you've taken the moisture away from Victoria and it will get much drier. In New South Wales, one of the major drivers of rainfall are East Coast lows. Well, you can have 7% more moisture in the atmosphere, but if the East Coast lows don't form in the same places, you can actually get a big reduction in rain. So it does sound counterintuitive for climate scientists to say more rain and more droughts. But what we're seeing is changes in the climate that seems to trigger a change in that pendulum between El Nino and La Nina cycles. The El Ninos that bring below average rain on the East Coast and the La Ninas that bring above average rain on the East Coast on average. And we're seeing those things, that pendulum shifting in interesting ways. And in some regions that's expressed as drying, and in some regions, that's expressed as considerable increases in rainfall. And therefore, it depends where you live. If you happen to live where the large scale dynamics moves moisture away from you, you're likely to dry. And if you live somewhere where the large scale dynamics channels moisture to where you live, you might end up being flooded. It just depends on how the atmosphere chooses to respond to what we're doing to it. That's that's terrific. I'm going to hand back to Giles in a minute, but you you mentioned the um, Enso, El Nino, and and La Nina, uh, and it seems to me um, that we still don't. Uh, I certainly don't, but I'm not sure that there's any settled science on what what drives which one of those phases we're actually in, and even whether uh, warming is going to uh, either accentuate it or make one or the other more predominant? Uh, so the El Nino-La Nina cycle is an expression of natural variability in a dynamical system. So if you have something as complicated as the ocean coupled to something as complicated as the atmosphere and you've got water moving around in the ocean in highly dynamic ways, commonly things emerge from the coupling of those systems. And without going into too much detail, the El Nino-La Nina cycle is a natural expression of natural variability within our ocean system. And you can actually describe that mathematically and simulate things that look like El Nino-La Nina cycles with very simple dynamical equations. That's the easy bit. The really, really hard bit is determining how that complex dynamical system will change under new forcing, which is what the elevated CO2 in the atmosphere contributes. So understanding that you switch between El Nino and La Nina is easy. Predicting which phase you'll be in in three years' time is beyond our current capacity because it is so complex. Um, there is some evidence of that pendulum beginning to swing a little bit more quickly, suggesting we might switch between El Nino and La Nina more rapidly. 
But truly, that is um, at the cutting edge of research, and it's very difficult to be assertive in, in, in anything around El Nino and La Nina cycles and how they're going to evolve in the future. There's a lot of disagreement between the different ways of, of, of understanding those processes. Actually, I'll just grab in one more quick question before Giles, because in recent years, I've come to focus a lot more in the fact that most of the heat uh, is going into the ocean uh, that's, that comes from global warming. And I calculated <laughs> that, you know, compared to the amount of oil, gas and coal energy that we produce each year, the amount of heat is going going into the ocean is about 18 times as much uh, at something like, I think, 10 zettajoules per year. Uh, and, and that seems to be accelerating that heat increase. I'm just... Could you talk about why it might be accelerating, first of all, and secondly, what the biggest impact of the, a warming ocean is, of all that heat going into the ocean is likely to be? So, yes, you're, you're um, not far wrong. Um, the amount of additional heat in the oceans is now, I think, 15 zettajoules, uh, which is, if you spend half an hour writing all the zeros that involves, it's quite impressive. The the amount of heat being absorbed in the top 700 metres of the ocean is eye-wateringly impressive. And it just goes to show what a small number in terms of the additional energy, in terms of how we communicate, it can translate into vast amounts of additional heat content. So... The increase in CO2 to date has contributed approximately two watts per meter squared to the global energy balance. And two watts per meter squared doesn't sound very much. But the problem is a watt is a joule per second. So that's two joules per meter squared per second of additional energy the CO2 has led to. And if you do the math on what two joules per square meter per second gives you in terms of energy integrated over 10 years, it's an eye-wateringly impressive number. So it's hard to communicate with zettajoules, but it is important to understand that two isn't a small number if it's followed by watts per square meter. It's like me saying you can have two um, billion dollars. And if I gloss over the billion quickly, you might not think the two represents a particularly big number. The consequences of this are very impressive. Um, that additional energy in the ocean must do work. If anyone listening has ever done physics, you know, energy can't sit around twiddling its thumbs. Energy must do work. And the work it does is to warm the ocean. If you have several kilometers of ocean warming, thermal expansion gets to be really interesting. And that additional heat is expanding the oceans. And that's expressed a sea level rise in many parts of the world, as you know. Uh, it also lifts ice sheets that are um, buttressing the ocean. And it lifts them and it tends to fragment them. So that additional heat going into the ocean is not a good news story. Uh, it has consequences 
uh, and those consequences of sea level rise and probably accelerated sea ice melt and loss of uh, loss of some of the ice shelves that buttress the land-based ice. Indeed, I think that was um, um, the, the, um, the thrust of an article, a very good article that David actually wrote this week for a new economy, um, pointing out all the energy that's going into the oceans. And I think quoting a paper that you were involved with um, and just pointing out, just, you know, just reinforcing the urgency. And um, you also made the point that this, all the two major parties are pretty much ducking this issue. Uh, before we get into the politics, politics, I am sort of kind of interested on in your observations of the political debate. And I know that's sort of hard for a scientist to enter into that. But you talked earlier about the, um, the variations and how some areas will be more affected than, than others. Is it possible to describe, I know Australia is a very big continent, but is it possible to describe or to say whether Australia is likely to be more affected than other regions or less affected? I mean, I guess it's, um, it's even asking that question, so I probably realise how silly that probably is. But I, mean, uh, <laughs> um, I, I, I guess parts of Australia could be really badly affected in a two-degree scenario um, more than others, but is it possible to say which? So this gets us from areas we know really well, like how much the sea will rise or how much global temperatures will warm, to a nuanced or granular understanding of the detailed patterns of change uh, across a landscape. And Australia is kind of big like the size of the continental US. So it's extremely hard to communicate areas particularly at risk without sounding a little bit um, trivia trivialising the issue a little bit. Mm -hmm. But <clears throat> sea level rise, maybe one to two metres end of the century. If you live on rock up above the ocean, you might only live you know, 20 metres from the ocean, and you're probably perfectly fine because you're on granite or sandstone and those things weather slowly. If you're much further away from the ocean but separated from the ocean by sandy dunes, you're probably at much more risk. Similarly, you can be a long way from the ocean but on an estuary and you're probably much more vulnerable than some other places. Uh, clearly, I mean, again, it's going to sound trivial, but if you live in the inner cities, you're not likely to be too vulnerable to um, things like bushfires, whereas there are clearly areas at the urban bush fringe that should be thinking about its vulnerability. But even there, you can be quite close to the bush, but downhill, and you're much less vulnerable to bushfire than if you're further away from the bush, uphill. So there are organisations now that are doing very granular estimates of existing risk. And you can, in fact, find companies that will estimate your current risk to a whole range of hazards. And they do some really nice work. Uh, the problem comes is when you put a climate change surface onto that. Um, as I said earlier, there's the dynamic response and the thermodynamic response. Those can change the sign of the rainfall change or change the sign of how much maximum temperatures will change. There's a whole range of things like that weaving together of the dynamical and thermodynamic response. And my view is 
below the scales of a region, we really have little skill in telling detail around most of those extremes that lead to hazards. Mm. Um, we can do it for the present, but as you move into the future, it becomes extremely doubtful that we can well inform communities around what they're vulnerable to, with probably the exception of heat risk and heat waves, uh, which tend to be large-scale features driven by large-scale uh, high-pressure systems. But when you get to rainfall, it gets to be extraordinarily hard. And I've seen products out there suggesting what will happen to your home in 2050, and um, I, I have expressed a range of yeah. views on those sorts of products. Has there, has there been any sort of event or sequences of a sequence of events that has particularly sort of alarmed you? I mean, you're someone that looks at the science that sort of anticipated some of the some of the the, the impacts that um, global warming would have. Has there been something in the last twelve months, eighteen months, two years, or or whatever that's gone? You've just gone crikey, that's pretty bad. That's worse than I thought. I, I think most climate scientists have been caught unaware of how fast extremes are changing. Um, so something as simple as temperature records, uh, we've got 100 years of observations for temperature over Australia now. So if you've got 100 years of data, you can work out the probability of those, being, those records being broken. And we see maximum temperature records being broken, even in La Ninas, which they really shouldn't be. La Ninas tend to cool the lands, cool Australia. El Ninos tend to add a bit of additional heat. And we've seen some records broken during La Ninas, and that, that's kind of pretty shocking. Um, the frequency of hot temperature records being broken surprises me and worries me. The new data that came out of research I think led out of University of Adelaide that showed intensification of short duration rainfall events was impressive. Uh, that shows quite accelerated increases in short duration rainfall. Uh, this is rainfall that occurs in three or six hours. That surprised me. The last thing that I can't speak to in any detail but has me rattled is there seems to be some emerging evidence that major events, cyclones, hurricanes, east coast lows, those sorts of big scale events are stalling. And I mean, travel more slowly across the landscape than they used to. And it's this is really kind of new and emerging. And I'm not sure what we'll learn in the next few years. But if you think about tropical cyclones moving more slowly, that actually has much more impact on the people living below them than if they intensified a little bit. Uh, the, the impact of a stalling cyclone over a reef, the impact of an East Coast low stalling over a catchment and just depositing moisture, these things can lead to catastrophic flooding. And I think it's probably one of the grand challenges that's emerging in climate science is to understand whether that's a real thing and to what degree it's likely to to evolve in the future. Mm. We're, we're running out of time, Andy, but um, um, for, for, for one one podcast, for what's obviously, uh, I imagine, a very growing 
body of science with, I hope, a lot of very bright people working on it. But could you just talk a little bit about the how the models themselves are advancing or the the general sort of um, the cutting edge of, of, of research in, in, in around uh, climate change and global warming as you see it? Uh, the, the, I mean, for those of your listeners who don't know, a, a classic climate model now is probably two million lines of computer code all expressing our understanding of the physics and mathematics of the weather, the climate, our oceans, etc. So these are extraordinarily complex modeling tools um, that are physically based on Newton's laws and all those other laws of physics that we used to get excited about. Um, and those models are improving. The way to improve them much more rapidly is to get critical mass of researchers working with a smaller number of models and at least in my view, getting those researchers using our models at much, much higher spatial detail. And there's two things stopping that. One is um, computational capacity. The, the world's biggest supercomputers are too slow. And the second is the immense challenge of rebuilding these models to run at fine spatial detail. We could do it but it needs a consortium of consolidated effort over a number of years with large numbers of people. It is the equivalent of the moon race or, or the building of CERN or the building of the Hubble telescope. These are, these are the scales of the research endeavor now. And I don't see that being committed to by most governments around the world, which leaves us in that depressing reality of heading rather blind into a future that we know is coming. Hmm. I'm just wondering if we can maybe finish on this sort of inevitable political question. I mean, we are in the middle of an election campaign. You talked about the urgency at the start of the podcast, the fact that, you know, we almost can't get to two degrees um, and 1.5 degrees is almost gone. What is it that you want to see or what is it that you want to hear politicians say and do? Uh, the word do is pretty important in that question because say is not that in, that is not that useful. Look, it's very simple. We need a, we need to get to net zero by about 2035. We need targets between now and 2035. They need to be legislated. Australia needs to wean itself off, as do all other countries, the burning of fossil fuels, and we need to use that as an opportunity to drive new technologies whether it be um, hydrogen or other renewables, and we need to do it real fast. I apologise for the urgency, but it wasn't that we weren't telling people. We were telling people back in 1990, and it didn't get listened to. And um, I rather suspect anything I say here would be echoed at the next election, because, to be honest, I think politicians find it extremely hard to make courageous decisions which they won't be celebrated for for years into the future. They have to actually make decisions that hurt for the long-term good of the country and, uh, and society as a whole. And um, if you know politicians likely to be in power that will put the long-term future ahead of their short-term political goals, um, I'm happy to be introduced. Well, I think we can maybe arrange that, but that's probably a good point too, because I do know some. Uh, and uh, 
Professor Andy Pittman, as, as I expected, this interview has been a great pleasure. I've learned a lot and uh, I look forward to doing another one at some stage in the future. Thanks very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. My pleasure. And that was uh, Andy Pittman, the uh, director of the Australian Research Centre for Climate Extremes. Um, bit of a reality check there, David. Well, it's great to hear uh, Professor Pittman uh, talk. He's a, he is a real expert on the topic uh, and is well recognised as such. Uh, scientist of the Year in New South Wales and, and you know, numerous other awards. Uh, and what I like about talking to him, Giles, is that he's able to make what is complex science uh, understandable to the likes of me. And I think it's particularly interesting, you know, we talk about all the opportunities that we have, but... Imagine two million lines of computer code that have to be maintained. And I mean, that's a wonderful challenge for, for, for the budding uh, 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 brains amongst our audience. Yes, well, the biggest challenge, though, I think, is actually coming up with climate policies um, that actually address the issue. And as um, Andy Pittman suggested, it, it takes some courageous policies. And I don't think we needed to watch Yes Minister to understand that if you put courage before policy, um, <laughs> then ministers and politicians seem to back away from it at a great rate of knots. Well, we've got, the, you know, the Teal Independents and the Greens um, uh, there. And then at state level, of course, we've got most of the state governments uh, on side, uh, some in Victoria with legislation to support them, others like Matt Keane, who I think is extremely able uh, and, and, and is actually doing what he says. And then we've got people, uh, you know, sometimes I ha have trouble distinguishing the government in Queensland from the federal government in terms of their approach to policy, but I'll probably, someone will probably uh, tread on my toe for saying that. Well, it's interesting. Um, one of the things that's coming out on Friday is the um, AEMA quarterly report, the quarterly energy dynamics, and it just sort of points to this sort of growing north-south divide um, between Queensland and New South Wales on one hand and the more renewable states of Victoria and South Australia on the other hand, um, not helped by sort of inadequate transmission links, but certainly those states which are more dependent on coal, Queensland and New South Wales, are paying a much higher price for electricity um, in this last quarter, in, in, in fact, since early last Last year, and the principal reason is that coal is often unreliable, often unavailable, and when it is available, it's bidding really high prices. Well, the coal price is incredibly high if you if you're exposed to spot, and somehow the generators do get exposed to spot, even if it's not in their formal contract. I mean, when I say it's incredibly high, it's like three times as high as it's ever been before in nominal dollars coal, uh, and the gas price is ridiculously high as well. So it's not unreasonable that electricity prices will be high. And then as you, uh, generators do go offline, uh, uh, Mount Piper has been uh, refurbished at the moment. We've had this major outage again in Victoria at Loyang A. Uh, but in addition to that, I think there's the early closure of Araring has made the futures prices go up. And this is the problem. Even when you've got uh, a desire or a plan. In fact, the more you have a plan to build new supply and the firmer that plan is, in fact, the higher prices are likely to be while that plan is getting built out because uh, the thermal generators start playing the game really hard and, and, and closing down because they knew, know their time span is shortened. So I think uh, we are going to be stuck with most likely making price predictions, even though I do it for a living is, is a silly game. But uh, uh, it's easy to see how high prices can can last for a, a little while yet. 
Mm. On the other hand, uh, David, we're starting to see a fair bit of movement on the renewable side. It's sort of got to be quiet there for a while, but we're starting to see some new projects. We're starting to see um, Origin, for instance, um, revealed today that it's bought almost one gigawatt of um, solar projects, including one huge 900 megawatt one in New South Wales. It quietly bought, bought a smaller one, sub 100 megawatts in Victoria. Um, there's been a bit of asset swapping amongst um, different parties, Green Energy Power, Green Energy Partners is out and new um, institutional fund is in, um, part of INEOS, the old first state colonial asset management is now talking about itself as the fourth biggest renewable energy developer. We've got Federation Asset Management buying the Riverina and Darlington Point battery assets. Uh, we've got talk of CWPs, Australian assets. and um, CWP is one, one of the top uh, three or four producers at the moment. It's got a big portfolio. And so it, it's interesting because it was only really bought by the partners group uh, a few years ago. So this is another uh, theme that uh, uh, I've long expected, frankly. And it's, that's consolidation. You know, the industry started out with a lot of cowboys and then you get consolidation as the people that are here for the long term uh, start to stay in the and industry will uh, concentrate. You know, there'll be fewer fewer suppliers. And just, uh, on top of that, I should uh, uh, mention that, you know, uh, you know, the high prices do produce new supply. This is why price works. OK, price is very high. You, people become more efficient in their use and new supplies induced. That's the way the market's supposed to work, you know, uh, and it is. It's just that there's a period in the middle. And right now, the other thing we haven't talked enough about on this podcast is that the renewable energy certificate prices are actually fantastic compared to what people thought they were going to be a couple of years ago. And right out to 2025, you can make at least $10. And right now you can make $30 or $40, you know, a certificate. So, uh, for, for a bundled solar project, you could probably be looking at $60, you know, if you were trying to write a PPA at the moment. Well, that even given the cost increases in, in for solar and wind and batteries that we've seen in the, in the last uh, six months or so, uh, you can still make money there. Well, yes, absolutely, and um, you know, I sort of long remember the um, the old predictions that the price will effectively fall to zero by around about now because um, the debt would have been met and the surplus, and they would have been worthless. But um, there you go, a whole bunch of reasons why that's happening. One final thing that we should mention, David, um, simply because it has been the most popular or the most read story on the website this week is about Sun Cable. It's filed its um, copious pages and documents for its environmental impact statement. But I guess one of the interesting things that sort of come out of that. I mean, apart from sort of addressing some of the impacts that's going to have on um, on 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 the on the environment around it, which isn't huge, but um, um, some of them need to be addressed. Just the sheer scale of the project, you know, sort of up to twenty gigawatts of, of solar. They've got a picture there of these endless arrays that's sort of going beyond the horizon. Um, battery storage, a new transmission line, quite huge, going up to the rail corridor. All sorts of infrastructure being built in Darwin and both in and Singapore, where the final destination for most of this power output would be. Um, phenomenal um, and no longer really just a pipe dream. I mean, this is really a very real project now. Giles, it was never a pipe dream. It might have been a cable dream, but uh, uh, it was never. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to say that, you know. You did. Uh, Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Look, the thing about this project, the two things about it are that uh, I think it's got a very good consortium and it's been done very seriously and very professionally for something that is as innovative as this and which has certainly not been done anything like this before. 
the scale of the project would nevertheless, you know, we're probably talking 40 Aussie billion dollars at the moment or something like that. I don't know, 30 to 40. Mm -hmm. Uh, certainly puts it up there as one of the biggest single infrastructure projects, if not the biggest ever built in Australia. That's that's how big it is. And uh, as much money as the as, as Twiggy Forest has got and as um, uh, uh, Grok has got, uh, Mike Cannon-Brooks, they haven't got that kind of money. Uh, uh, the next thing to say is that the cable, whilst we've got under water DC cables that have been built, we haven't got any that are four or 5,000 kilometres long. I mean, there's a, it's a really big, serious project and it's proceeding and uh, it's great to see the EIS. It's great to see the serious players that are there and by gee, they've got a big job on their hands. Mm, absolutely. Nice way to end the podcast. Um, David, um, thank you very much. Thanks for your suggestion for bringing Professor Andy Pittman on board. Thanks for Andy's participation in the podcast. Thanks for everybody out there. Um, look forward to seeing many of you at the Smart Energy Conference in Sydney next week. Um, probably the first get-together since last year's Smart Energy Conference, which managed to find a window uh, in between the various sort of COVID scares. Um, thanks, of course, to our sponsors, Pylon and Evergen, and we look forward to being reporting back this time next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.